I've covered two previous messages that answers uh, several questions that people have. They're called end time or end of days questions. I've spoken to the issue of how can a loving God send anyone to hell? That's kind of one of those twisted questions that people ask. If you weren't here for that, you need to get a copy of that. Also spoke about heaven a few weeks back. Another end of days question. But folks, we're in the end of days. We better know what what the Bible says about these days and these topics. Today I'm going to speak about a very difficult topic. It's called hell. Hmm. It's a strong word for a pastor to speak about in a day that's uh, drifting toward political correctness, even among clergy. It was a strong word for Jesus to address. But Jesus preached about hell. He preached about hell 33 times. He spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. He spoke about hell because he doesn't want anyone to go there. (laughs) Jesus had three and one half year ministry here, and he preached about hell 33 times. That's close to once every six weeks. So some of you might not have desired to attend his church because every six weeks he would talk to you about hell. Why did Jesus address this topic? Because he's filled with compassion and wants to prevent anybody from going to a place called hell. Because the word of God speaks of hell 167 times. Yet many denominations, churches, and pastors are distancing themselves from the subject of hell. Some deny its existence. In a recent survey, a great percentage of people say they do not believe in a literal hell. 34% of Baptists don't believe in a literal hell. 54% of Presbyterians. 58% of Methodists. 60% of Episcopalians do not believe in a literal hell. Yet the Word of God speaks of hell 167 times. I don't know what Bible they're reading. 71% of students, listen to this, 71% of students in our top eight seminaries who are preparing for ministry in the United States, they're going to fill our pulpits in a few years, do not believe in a literal hell. Some of them don't even believe in heaven. And the reason, if you don't believe in hell, you really can't believe in heaven because the same book teaches about both. The same Jesus teaches about both. So in my opinion, to deny the existence of hell is a denial of who Jesus is because he spoke boldly about it. God's word. To deny God's word is a difficult thing to ever put yourself into that position. If you deny the existence of hell, you're going to fall into one of four groups. The first group are atheists. Atheists do not believe in hell because they do not believe in God. They believe we evolved from nothing, and when we die, we just cease to exist. Now, this might shock you. Atheists don't believe in God. Okay? I don't believe in atheists. Now, let me explain. Okay? I believe it's scientifically impossible to be an atheist. And I'll show you why in just a second. Because there's a difference between being an atheist and agnostic. Agnostics say, I don't know if there is a God. Agnostic is a word taken from the Greek word, gonosko. Gnosticism means to know. Ag is the 
antithesis to that word. Agnostic means, I don't know. An atheist says, there is no God. That's scientifically impossible, because in order to make that statement, one would have to possess all knowledge. And scientists tell us that the smartest of human beings possess about 2% of all knowledge in the world. Languages, history, the sciences, all knowledge, 2%. How much of that do you possess? Is there a chance in the 98% of the knowledge you don't possess that God exists? And since many of you know there is a God, perhaps you might want to share that knowledge with somebody else. So since no one possesses all knowledge, there are no atheists. There are agnostics. And here's what the Word of God says about atheists. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's pretty strong, isn't it? Second group, annihilators. (laughs) They do not believe in hell. They believe believers go to heaven, but unbelievers are annihilated. Some believe they're annihilated in hell by using Matthew 10, 28, but rather fear him, that's God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But you can't make a personal interpretation of one verse and build a doctrine out of it. You've got to take the whole of Scripture. Look at what all of the verses say collectively about a topic. The whole Word of God teaches that there is a literal hell. Annihilation is not a biblical viewpoint. It's a very narrow viewpoint. The third group, ultimate reconciliationists. They believe that ultimately everybody will be reconciled to God. That people do go to hell, but they only go to hell for a period of time dependent on how bad they were on earth. And if you were very, very bad, you'd stay longer in hell. That hell is a place of purification and remediation, and then eventually everybody gets out of hell, and you'll go to heaven. They believe Satan will ultimately himself be reconciled to God. Interesting. Again, I'm not sure what pages they're reading here. The fourth group, universalists. And there are many popular preachers today who are universalists, people who were one time very strong evangelicals. Because they misunderstand and they take that twisted question, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? We know he doesn't. People choose. But they've taken the premise and they say, because Jesus died on the cross, he covered the sins of everyone. Yes, he did. What he did covered the sins of all the human race. But one still has to make a choice. They have taken free will out of the equation So everybody's going to heaven. No one's going to hell. That includes Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden. They are all going to go to heaven. (laughs) When the terrorists at 9-11 flew their planes or flew our planes into our buildings, both the believers on those planes and the terrorists all went to heaven together. That's what universalists teach. I need to tell you something about my text before I read it this morning. What Jesus tells us here is a true story. And here are the reasons why. It doesn't say, and he spoke a parable to them. In this chapter, Jesus tells parables, but by the time he starts this topic, he does not call this story a parable. Neither is it a simile. 
Jesus doesn't say it is like. Jesus is telling us a true story. First of all, he says, there, there, there was a certain rich man. The word certain means a very specific individual, a specific individual who was rich. He also said there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Again, a specific person. It's not the same Lazarus he raised from the dead a few days before his, his crucifixion. This man was a beggar. The Lazarus he raised from the dead was his friend and not a beggar, a pretty well-off person who lived in Bethany. But it was a common name, so this is another Lazarus. So listen to the words of Jesus. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to whose bosom? Abraham. Was Abraham a real person? Mm-hmm. He's speaking of real people in this story. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades or hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Very poor beggar. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime. So recall, memory in eternity is real. Remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and uh, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So Jesus is speaking here. This ends all debate on the evidence of hell. Jesus is speaking of a specific man and says he is in hell. This also ends all debate on whether or not it's a place of fire. Because Jesus said he was in flames. 32 times in the New Testament, it refers to hell as containing fire, an unquenchable fire, everlasting fire, eternal lake of fire, all of these matters. 19 times, Jesus refers to hell as fire. This also ends all debate on whether hell is a place of torment. The word torment is used four times in this story and message Jesus tells. And the Greek word for torment has three meanings. Uh, if you looked up the word in Wikipedia, you might see a couple of definitions, but the Greek word for torment here has three meanings. The first definition is acute pain from debilitating disease. The second definition is the name of a rack of torture. It contains sharp object, and they when they stretched your body on it, the sharp objects would pierce the body. One then would die from the stretching and the piercing. And the third definition describes a fire hot enough to melt all metals, all of them. 
So these three definitions of the word torment mean acute pain, a rack of torture, intense fire. That's how Jesus described hell. Wow. So according to what Jesus describes in this passage, we can discern a few things about the people or the person who goes to hell. I want to share three things about what happens to the person who chooses to reject Jesus and goes to hell. Number one, he desires comfort. Look in that passage, verse 24. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Notice that the man didn't request a bucket of water, not even a cup of water, or that he might dip his finger, whole finger into the water, but the request was, please just dip the tip of your finger in water to cool my tongue. And I shared this a few weeks ago. Hell was not created for you. Isaiah 5 reveals that because man decided, <clears throat> choice, to follow Satan, hell had to be enlarged. Hell has been enlarged by necessity, not by design. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, this is Jesus speaking, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So this statement by Jesus blows away the theory of the annihilators who think you're done away with in hell. Fire, it is a fire, and for whom? Well, for the devil and his angels, Jesus did not prepare hell for you. He prepared heaven for you. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, he said, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I, listen, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. What a great promise. Jesus prepares heaven for us. He didn't prepare hell for us. Going to hell is a choice. In hell, a person desires comfort. No doubt, they desire comfort. Number two, a person in hell expresses concern. He immediately requests, please send him to my brothers. I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Every person in hell will have this thought. I hope my children don't end up here. I hope my brothers and sisters don't end up here. And they also may have this thought. They will remember that you attended church. So they might think from hell, perhaps at Easter or Christmas, my loved ones will attend Calvary Christian Center, and somebody will warn them about this place. But then the person in hell might have this thought. They might hear about this place. If they attend church at Calvary, well, my friend Joe's a Christian, and maybe he'll warn them so that they don't end up where I am. But then again, Joe never bothered to tell me. He argued with me about politics, but he never told me I would end up in a place like this. And it was so easy to have avoided this place of torment. If I had simply given control of my life to Jesus Christ, I could have avoided this place. Every person desires comfort, and every person expresses concern. And then number three, the man sought, listen, 
consolation. He tried to convince himself if someone would return from the dead and tell them, perhaps they would believe. Send him to my father's house. Abraham had a response to that request. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Comprehend what Moses is and the prophets mean to Scripture. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets wrote all the other books. And at this point in time when Jesus is preaching, there was no New Testament. So when he said, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets who wrote the Bible, what he said was, if they won't believe God's word, they won't believe even if one were to rise from the grave. So listen carefully. Jesus did rise from the grave. And this is a direct reference by Jesus himself to his own resurrection. He did rise. Because there's more historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than that Julius Caesar lived. That one specific Caesar. Many people believe Julius Caesar lived, but he was a character in a Shakespearean play. But most never take the time to fact check. If people won't believe the word of God, they won't believe even if one rises from the grave. And Jesus did. And there are still people who don't believe. Jesus in this story is describing hell before the resurrection of Christ. Understand that every person who died before the resurrection of Christ went to a place of waiting. And there were two compartments in this huge chasm called the place of Abraham's bosom. Two compartments separated by a great gulf. And on one side you had hell where people were being tormented who rejected God. On the other side of the chasm, you had what was called paradise, a place of comfort waiting for the Old Testament saints. These were people who believed God and served him. The word tells us that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he descended into the lower parts and led all the Old Testament saints who were in paradise to heaven. Jesus, because Jesus said to the thief dying on the adjacent cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm going to that compartment. You're going to be there with me. I'm taking them all out of there and taking them to heaven. There is also a future place of torment after the second return of Jesus. And the future eternal hell has some characteristics you need to understand. There are two physical properties on earth that keep us mentally stable. It's a scientific fact. It's researchable. Light and solid. Light helps us to gain and keep our bearings. If we can see where we're going and what we're doing, and even people who are blind many times can distinguish between light and dark, lightness and darkness. And it keeps, help keeps them stable. So understand light is not in hell. Jesus describes hell as the place of outer darkness will be cast out into outer darkness. The word describes hell as complete darkness. And the Greek word there is blackness. So to describe this, have you ever been to a deep underground cave? Have you ever been to one of those? Several of them back in the Midwest that are very deep. You descend into the cave through multiple levels on lighted pathways. When you reach a place 
where there is a huge drop-off, your tour guide will take you to the, right up to the edge, and then he'll drop a rock, or she will drop a rock over that abyss. And you listen, and you listen, and it's so, so deep. seems like it takes forever, and all of a sudden you hear clunk. Wow. But as soon as that happens, the guide turns off all the lights, and it's pitch black. Not one iota of light. You're so far underground. Listen, and, and, and then he tells you, put your hand up to your face. You cannot see your hand right on your face. Your eyes cannot adjust. It's total blackness. There is no light. You cannot see. Instantaneous sensory deprivation. And if you didn't know someone was going to bring the lights back up, you'd panic. You are in utter darkness and blackness, and you're about three feet from the edge of an abyss. And Satan has deceived multitudes that hell is just going to be one big party. Understand. You will never see anybody. Never connect with another human being. No contact with another person. Isolation. Because there's no light in hell. But there is light in heaven. Which of the two places would you rather be? Huh? The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. So the reason there is no light in hell, God has withdrawn and removed his presence from the people and the place. Where he's gone from, there is no light. Solids are also a function of stability for humans. Being able to hold on to something, to grab something, to know gravity keeps your feet secure on the ground. Being able to sit down, to walk, to touch something. But hell is described like this. The bottomless pit. You will never touch anything solid. You will never get to sit down. You will never get to stand on solids. And no matter how hard you lunge, you will never touch anything solid again. The properties that keep us mentally stable on earth will not be present in hell. Then the two emotional properties that keep us stable on earth are rest and hope. And some think rest is a physical property, but it's also an emotional property. Rest keeps us emotionally stable. Notice how grumpy you get when you're tired. Your spouse has probably told that to you. You need a nap. When you get tired, you start losing it emotionally. When a loved one passes away, you'll notice how tired you are. People around you will say to you, you need to get a little rest need to relax a little bit. We know that if we can just rest, even for a few minutes, we can handle whatever we're going through. So the scripture says, in the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. No rest. Then the second emotional property no longer available in hell, no hope. There's no hope. On earth, we always have hope. I mean, it can get better. God can intervene. We may receive the favor of the Lord. The person who commits suicide is one Satan is convinced that something is true on earth that is also true in hell. You have no hope. He's convinced the person on earth through a lie they have no hope. 
on earth, you always have hope because you're alive and because you're consciously alive, you can always turn to God. In hell, there is no hope. Every person who is in hell will have this thought. When I have been here 10,000 centuries, I will not have one less second to be in this place. Because hell is forever. That's why Paul said to the church, you sorrow as others, you sorrow not as others who have no hope. Your sorrow is not the same as those who are hopeless. One more thing about hell. It comes from directly from Jesus as he describes hell. And Jesus used the word to describe hell that no other person had ever used or has ever used. The Jewish people knew what he was speaking about because he used the word Gehenna. They knew what that meant. Gehenna is the valley of Henna. And when the Canaanites were occupants of the land around Jerusalem, it was called the Valley of Hennum. It's the valley south of the city of Jerusalem. And from David's citadel, you can see two valleys as they come together near the western wall. And the valley on the south side of Jerusalem is called Gehenna. In that valley was a continuous fire because it was the city dump. And it burned 24-7. There they burned all the refuse of the city. And then on top of that, the Romans would toss the bodies of those they executed into that fire. Those who were too poor to be buried in a typical grave were also tossed into that fire. And you could smell flesh burning. Now, when Israel was taken into captivity by Babylon, they learned a Babylonian practice. The Babylonians would burn their children to the god of Moloch. Afterward, they came back out of captivity. Two Israeli kings practiced this evil idol worship, Ahab and Manasseh. And they burned their children in the valley of Hena. That's very difficult to describe. Worshiping devils through idols. By the way, that's what you're really worshiping when you worship idols. Devils. They made their children walk into the fire. And they were burned alive. And often they would use whips to drive their children into that fire. Jesus used the phrase that every Jewish person understood when he was describing hell. Cast into everlasting fire. The word Jesus used was Gehenna. That's the word he used. And then Jesus goes on to say, And cast him into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These young children offered to devils in the fires of Gehenna. They would weep and wail and grind their teeth as they were being burned alive. And Jesus said, I'm attempting to tell you the best I can, the terrors of hell, so you will choose not to go there. And here's a ludicrous illustration, but a very real one. If you're driving home tonight after church and your neighbor's house is on fire, what would you do? All of us would do the same thing. We'd immediately call our fire department. Get over here right away. 
And if it were safe to do so, we'd walk up as close as possible to see if there's anybody in the house and start yelling, get out of there, get out. Now, why is this ludicrous? Because none of us would see our neighbor's house on fire and then pull into our own garage thinking, well, someone else will tell them. Or I I will just pray for them. Now, I believe in prayer. I was here last night. Some of you were. It's the first step concerning your lost friends and family. Prayer. But there's a second step. You have to tell them. You have to tell them. Romans 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him whom they have not heard? How can they hear unless someone tells them? We have to tell them. So Calvary Christian Center, hear me. Your neighbor's house is not on fire, but your neighbor is. And if he or she does not know Jesus, according to Jesus himself, he or she will have chosen to go to the place of fire, torment, darkness, hopelessness for all eternity. And we're charged by Jesus himself to go into all the world, starting at our own Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea. And not one after the other, but all simultaneously to spread this message as fast as we can. And what's the message? It's good news. (laughs) I'm building a home for you in heaven. And you get to choose not to go to where Satan has taken his own future and wants to take you with him because he's put a curse on the human race. And all of sin then comes short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life. Wow. What a great message in a hopeless world. And so, saints, we have an obligation to not just sit and warm a seat on Sunday, but to tell our neighbors and friends and family members the message of good news because Satan is going to take as many human beings with him into the pit of the damned. And we get to stop him from succeeding by presenting good news to people. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand for a moment. Let's stand for a moment. This is a very heavy word, but a very important word.